Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. And your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. In this episode, we'll be discussing the ISLC fellowship grants and their impact in our guests' careers. First, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Grace D., Associate Professor of Medicine at the Department of Medicine at Jacob School of Medicine and Biomedical Science at the University of Buffalo, and a medical thoracic oncology at Roswell Park. Dr. D. received an ISLC fellowship grant in 2007. Welcome, Dr. D. Hello, Narjus. Thank you for the invitation to participate. I can't imagine it's already been 15 years. Time flies. And we also have Dr. Fred Hurt. Dr. Fred Harris is the Executive Director at the Center for Thoracic Oncology and the Tisch Cancer Institute at Mount Sinai, and the Joe Lowe and Louis Price Professor of Medicine at the Eakin School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's also Associate Director of the Biomarker Discovery at TCI, and a previous CEO of ISLC. Dr. Harris received an ISLC Fellowship Grant in 2001. Welcome. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation to share my experience. I'm always happy to promote the fellowships. Thank you for being here. We also have Dr. Jerushka Naidu. Dr. Naidu is a consultant medical oncologist, Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. She's also an assistant professor at Job Hawkins. She's a clinical translational investigator that specializes in immunotherapy for lung cancer and immune-related toxicity. Dr. Naidu received Lung Cancer Foundation BMS Joint Investigator Grant in 2020. Welcome. Thanks, Narjist. Really excited to talk to you today. And thanks again to the ISLC for the privilege of receiving this grant. We are delighted to have you here. It is important to mention that adequate research funding is key for furthering developments in lung cancer research. Cancer research saves lives. Many of us involved in thoracic oncology have gotten our start because of funding provided by organizations like ISLC or other foundations. For several decades, the ISLC has helped careers of many leaders in the field by providing multiple funding opportunities each year during several cycles, including funding in conjunction with partners like industry. Fred, you have been in both sides of the ISLC. You have been in the ISLCS organization and the foundation. Can you first tell us your story about receiving a grant and how you found out this opportunity? Thank you very much. Yeah, my story goes back, as you mentioned, to year 2001. And that was a period of time where um, I was hoping to transition from Copenhagen, Denmark, to United States. I had one year sabbatical when I left Copenhagen, and my plan was actually to come back to Copenhagen. Well, I was hoping, though, that this year could give me opportunities. 
And the situation for me was at that time, after a year, I did not have uh, money to continue. I did not have any grant portfolio, which was natural. I just came to, from another continent in Denmark. The research money comes kind of easier than it does in the United States. So my situation was not so good at that time. I liked the research I started in the United States. I liked the environment. I uh, tried to figure out how to continue in America. So my uh, mentor in Copenhagen, Dr. Heine Hansen, he gave me, I borrowed some money from him. And on the same time, uh, my mentor in the uh, United States, Dr. Paul Bann, connected me with ISLC. Well, I was connected to ISLC already there, but there was a person instrumental in grant foundations at that time, uh, Bu Aldiche. Bu Aldiche is still a very active patient's advocate. But she had succeeded to make together with Bristol Myers Squibb a uh, grant, I think it was around 50,000 uh, US dollar, uh, which is still, I guess, the level of ISLC grants, most ISLC grants. But the $50,000, if I could get those $50,000, I could continue in uh, America with my research together with the money I borrowed from Dr. Heine Hansen. So uh, I succeeded to get this ISLC fellowship. And with uh, this platform, I was, of course, able to make new grants. And in this way, I could continue in uh, America. So that is the story for my part. So Fred, following on your story, do you think the ISLC Fellowship Award was one of the top three things that helped you, you know, develop the large career you have here in the United States? I think it was the opportunity I had, and it was the significance of that can not be overestimated. I, that was the reason I could continue. There is no doubt about it. The topic for my research at that time was looking into early stages of lung cancer, even preneoplasia, and particularly at that time study EGFR. And I was so fascinated of this type of research. So I wanted it so badly, and ISLC was a mechanism I could continue. Thank you so much. Stories like yours hope motivates our listeners to not only apply for the grant, but to understand that funding, it is essential. So the other side of the listeners can also contribute to the foundation. Moving along, Grace, how do you find out about the ILCC grants? Was it your mentor? Was it a peer? Oh, thanks, Narjas, for that question. Actually, I found out about the IASLC grant at the time I was Mayo Clinic Fellow, and you and I have the same kind of mentor, you know, Dr. Alex Ajay. I really owe a lot to him uh, in terms of my career path. So he had been actively involved in IASLC, and he was the one who actually advised me to apply for this fellowship 
grant opportunity. The idea that I used for application was largely influenced by my collaboration with a junior attending who had been working with a translational scientist characterizing a genetic biomarker for platinum resistance in ovarian cancer. So that was how it got about. So I had multiple sources of inspiration, but I really owe it all to Dr. Alex Ajay. Thank you, Grace. And certainly Dr. Ajay has influenced many of us career. He was my Mayo mentor. So it is good. You know, we, I think we're like kind of sisters <laughs> in a way because we both train a Mayo and we have the same mentor. Jerushka, can you tell us your story about finding the ISLC fellowship grant and how you went about applying? Sure. You know, I think any up-and-coming thoracic oncologist and lung cancer researcher is familiar with IASLC. It's one of our flagship, if not the flagship society for those of us who are interested in thoracic oncology. So I was interested in lung cancer very early on in my career, even as an intern. So, and I came from a very interesting background in that one of the medical oncologists in Ireland where I trained was a former president of the IASLC So I was familiar with this for a long time. So I had probably been looking at IASLC fellowships for many years before I was in a position to actually apply for one. In terms of how I prepared for this, I first of all, I came up with the concept, the concept of the study that I wrote for, and I sought out prior awardees. I was privileged to have worked with other IASLC awardees, Patrick Ford and others, and I read their grants ahead of time to sort of understand exactly what a successful grant would look like. And then, you know, I set up a mentorship team alongside my own mentor at Johns Hopkins to apply for the award. And then from there was very fortunate to receive it. So I think, you know, that's sort of a key take-home message for many of our listeners and others who are interested in applying for grants like the IASLC grant is to, to have a system and a plan by which you will prepare for the grant. And that hopefully will lead to a more successful outcome. Thank you for sharing that, Wills. I think having a connection to ISLC certainly helped the three of you. But to our listeners, that connection doesn't, doesn't need to be there. And all applications are welcome, even if you, one of your mentors is not embedded into the organization. Moving forward, I would like to ask each of you, do you remember why you study for your grant? Some of you already give us a little bit of a hint. And how did the research you did with the grant money help you through career in thoracic oncology? I will start with Grace. Thanks, Narja. So the concept that I proposed was you know, to look at a protein called CC2D1A that was uh, a protein encoded by a gene that uh, one of the translational scientists at Mayo Clinic uh, identified as a potential mediator of platinum resistance in ovarian cancer. So at that time, you know, I was working with junior faculty Julian Molina. So he and I, we looked at how this may translate to lung cancer in relationship to, you know, other known potential markers of platinum sensitivity and resistance, such as ERCC1. And so put me in the lab and I work with several people and learn some skills in the lab. But most of all, it's learning the scientific method, learning how to evaluate questions. It was fun. And certainly this award being on the CV, you know, helps, you know, give you some credibility as well. I can remember, you know, many subsequent 
you know, applications for other awards, you know, some of the criticisms will be, you know, you haven't had your independent award. So having this certainly is helpful. Thank you for sharing that. And it is, you know, Dr. Belina was also somebody we have in common who also certainly helped with one of my grants. Jerushka, what is what, what were you studying with your grant or you are still studying with your grant and how that impacted your career? Yeah, thanks, Narjist. Great question. So, so the project that was supported by this grant is still active and ongoing. So uh, the project is called Microbial Determinants of Response and Toxicity to Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors for Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And it builds on you know, an area that is, is really hot in immunotherapy at the moment and has been for a couple of years investigating the role of the gut microbiome and how the host's own gut microbiota may hone their immune response and be implicated in the outcomes to immunotherapy for lung cancer. So I think this project was really important to me for several reasons. I had done my fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering and worked with several investigators who had an interest in the gut microbiome, Eric Pamer, Jed Walchok, and his junior faculty, Maggie Callahan, who did a similar project on gut microbial determinants of toxicity in melanoma. So I already had some experience from my fellowship that I was privileged to be able to bring to Hopkins. And then working with another microbiome investigator at Hopkins, Dr. Cindy Sears, and immunologists Drew Pardall, as well as, of course, Julie Bramer in the lung cancer group, we wanted to investigate whether these gut microbial features were important in patients with lung cancer. Up until then, only one published paper had been had reported some association in lung cancer from the French group, but there was no data in, in a US context yet. I think, you know, this project, as I say, is ongoing, but it's taught me several important, I think, sort of key parameters of successful scientific grants. The first is team science. This was very much a team science grant with obviously myself writing the grant, but then input from microbiome researchers, immunologists, lung cancer physicians, statisticians, specialized bioinformaticians who are microbiome bioinformaticians. And it really taught me how a team science grant can work and function and how every member of the team is important and brings something new and an important dimension to the study. And even though, you know, through the life cycle of this grant, my institution has changed, I still participate in microbiome and immunotherapy lab meetings every week where we analyze the data. And it also shows how projects can sort of transcend continent and that the questions remain relevant. In terms of my career, I think this, this grant has been truly transformative. As Dr. D said, it's sort of one of the first independent grants that many of us would have received. So it sort of sets the stage for future grants and it helps to build connections within the IASLC and through other grant funding mechanisms. So I think is a great channel for future grant funding. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's great to hear how, you know, the projects evolve over time. As listeners should know, the idea that's initially submitted for these grants tends to vary as do you find new data and potentially new funding opportunity. Fred, you give us a little hint about what were you studying with your grant. And besides, you know, allowing you to stay in the U.S., which other opportunities the grant opened for you? Yeah, thank you. And I just, the topic at that time uh, for me was looking into 
dysplasia, bronchial dysplasia, and particularly as a part of the Colorado Long Spore Group, which was led by Paul Bunn, and together with Wilbur Franklin, we started to look into the role of EGFR. We demonstrated very clearly that EGFR expression was was strong and dependent on the stage of preneoplastic development. And that was in the beginning of the era around the EGFR focus, which all of us know later led to treatment paradigm for this particular subgroup of patients with lung cancer. So with this work, which was a part of the Colorado Lung Spore, we started also to focus on other biomarkers, which could be or was already candidate for targeted therapies. And the tissue is the issue. You probably have heard this sentence. It came up when I I had an opportunity to give plenary discussion at ASCO. And at that time, I had fellow in my lab, Dr. Federico Capuzzo from Italy, and we were sitting in a corner in the basement in the pathology department and preparing my presentation for ASCO. And we discussed, and Federico told me, Fred, you, you need to find a more apologize for using the word sexy title. And we were discussing what kind of title should that be. And we came up with the tissue is the issue. And that was the beginning of personalized medicine in lung cancer. And this title has, of course, followed me all over the world later in my career. But it was a focus on use of tissue for studying and determining predictive biomarkers, which has been the leading path for my research later on. We extended, of course, the work from EGFR to ALK and to others, biomarkers, and more lately, immunotherapy and the Blueprint Project was developed, which I coordinated. So it was the beginning of a long career, which has been focused on biomarker development and validation for early detection and for new targeted therapies in lung cancer. Thank you, Fred, for sharing that for us. And that's enlightening. So can we say that you are the person that invented the no tissue, no issue term? Can we give you that credit? I think so. We hadn't heard about it before. And it was in the early 2000s, as I said, when I gave this ASCO presentation, and it has followed me the whole time. So yeah, I think, I think I'm the father of, of the tissue is the issue. <laughs> this and is going to be wonderful. one of those things, isn't it? Like who sang the song first? Yeah. Uh, I wonder if someone's going to come in and debunk that. Let's wait and see. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't have the copyright on it. <laughs> <laughs> We may have to consider that, Fred. I think every fellow, when it's in console service, at least once a, a day, says no tissue, no issues. So, Okay. <laughs> as far as oncology, pop culture, I would say. Yeah. 
as we move the discussion, you know, our application had deadlines. I'm in a deadline right now for a grant in 11 days. One tip I received from my mentor at the time, Dr. Alex Ajay, was write the grant, get the grant ready at least a month before submission. So you can send it to people and you can bug people to get the reviews on time. Grace and Jerushka, what are some of your tips regarding time management with grant writing and submissions? I will start with Jerushka. Yeah, I think that's great advice that you got now, just that you know you need to start preparing your grant submission early. I'm obviously even more type A <laughs> than than Alex Ajay, which is alarming to hear because I probably start a grant submission at least three months ahead of time, maybe longer, because I think people are getting busier and busier and getting those getting the feedback it requires quite a lot of lead time. I think the other reason to start early is to allow you to block off sufficient time during the week for grant writing. And I think this is true really of any scholarly activity. You know, you hear lots of people saying, I just don't have enough time to write the paper, or I just don't have enough time to do a specific scholarly activity. And so I usually block off a certain period of the week that everything gets turned off. And that's when I write my paper or my grant or whatever's highest on my list. And I think as an academic, that is exactly what we have to do because it's very difficult to balance between clinical work and academic work. And we have to block off that time as best we can in order to, to achieve that goal. I mean, the other thing I would say is don't start too early, though, because one thing with grants is they will definitely fill the time you give them and that you could spend a lot of time just doing little tweaks here and there and trying to beautify it when you're probably not advancing it, you know, much further than you already have it. So find that sweet spot that's right for you, block off some time, and hopefully that will stand you in good stead. Thank you for sharing that. And to be clear, Alex used to tell me to get the grant ready to send a month before the deadline. So I usually start like six months. Oh, wow. There we go. To be honest with you, that doesn't apply all the time. (laughs) Most of the time it doesn't. So Grace, where are some of your tips for time management, you know, I, I see grant writing sometimes like a monster. I can finish a paper faster than I can finish a grant. So any tips would be welcome. Oh, yes. I, Jerushka and you kind of like summed it up very beautifully, you know, essentially with all so many sources of potential, you know, grant funding, there's really no like starting point. You know, you have your pet idea, you put it down to paper. And then you tweak it along to, you know, what fulfills, you know, maybe a specific grant call for application need. So I'm not sure about a clear timeline. I'm guilty of more (laughs) last minute, you know, scramble. But yes, getting it as soon as you can so that you can get it out to your collaborators. Because a lot of it is also, you know, getting the budgeting correctly. So really time, uh, time management is key and having some you know, protected block of time. So if we can clear the calendar and, you know, so it's a two-way street to some extent. We have to be able to say no to people, you know, asking for, you know, can can we meet? Can we discuss? And then we just have to be cognizant. Um, you know, sometimes you also have to put your own needs above what other people are asking from you. So having a blocked off time, you know, every week for you to be able to write 
will be key and helpful. Thank you. I, you know, I often try to block my calendar, but be honest with you, sometimes that blockage is, is like a, it helps me feel better, but sometimes it's not real. <laughs> uh, oh so yeah. You- it's often not real because it gets, you know, like, oh, something, something urgent, you need to put out fire and okay, that gets sacrificed. That is true. So working with mentors and advisors is essential while submitting a grant. You know, for some career development grants is one of the things that they look more. What is your mentorship plan? So Fred, what are your recommendations while working with BC mentors? Should we send calendar invites, 50 emails? What really work? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. During my career, I've been um, blessed by uh, being close, physically located to my mentors. I studied in Copenhagen with Heine Hansen, as I mentioned, and in the uh, United States with Paul Bunn. And I have been fortunate to have an office or location close to them. So I developed a personal relationship with them and could go in and out of their office and we could discuss in a hallway. And But uh, time has changed. And I see today when I myself is functioning as a mentor for many, I have done that over many years also in Colorado, but Today, I'm surrounded by, by very, very active and very good investigators. It's probably not fair to mention names, but, but I, I can't avoid to mention names like Debbie Dorosov and Christian Rolfo, and now Tripana Sen is coming uh, in a couple of, of months. She's already actively involved in our work. So... Uh, uh, I have to mentor them on a more kind of remote fashion. And I have weekly meetings with them face-to-face or uh, in the pandemic, of course, over Zoom, but these days face-to-face. So uh, I do believe that personal contact is important and uh, regular meetings with your mentors are important. should be permanent agenda item on your weekly schedule. But beyond that, I don't know, emails and uh, I don't know exactly what what the right mechanism is. I can only tell what my mechanism is. Thank you, Fred. And Jerushka and Grace, do you have any tips on how to, you know, not only your mentor, but anybody to get timely reviews for your grants? Yeah, you know, I think this is a, a really tricky area Obviously, everybody is busy and has their own projects. And then to to set up new projects and grants can be, this can be a challenge. But I think in my experience, being very organized and trying to set this up several months beforehand and sort of gauging the interest of the different mentors and collaborators beforehand will set you up with, you know, realistic expectations. I think I was very fortunate, you know, uh, in my experience with this grant and at Hopkins, I had a mentorship committee. And we set out ahead of time, similar to the experience that, that Fred outlined, where we met, you know, every week or two weeks, and then we would have a group meeting once a month to discuss the progress of the project. And I've found that that's worked really well. I also agree with Fred that, you know, contrary to the current world we live in, we may have adapted to a virtual world, but there is nothing that can replace the in-person world 
particularly when you're forging a new team or developing connections with a new mentor or new collaborator. I really don't think there can be a price put on meeting for a drink or a cocktail or a cup of tea or whatever it is, your, your chosen beverage to flesh out a project and to write a grant. Uh, I echo the same sentiment, you know, having regular, you know, scheduled discussions, whether it be video, given the, you know, pandemic uh, restrictions, or, you know, now that uh, things are easing up, weekly, bi-weekly check-in. It actually, as a mentor, it helps you to, you know, uh, be on top of the needs of your mentees as well, you know, amidst managing, you know, other busy work. So that works both ways as a mentee, you know, don't be shy about, uh, you know, reaching out to your mentor directly. It, it is your role to actually seek, seek help. So don't be afraid to, it's not a bother to the mentor. And conversely, as a mentor, you know, it also is helpful if you actually also initiate it because some, some mentees might uh, be reluctant or maybe shy to reach out to you feeling as if they may not be performing well if, you know, they ask for help. So uh, it works both ways, I think. Thank you, Grace, for sharing that. I think, you know, the relationship varies and it's true. I used to like knock at my mentor's door and that some of the new generation had no experience that like I'm working from home today, for example. So Jerushka, as we move with the discussion, what are some practical tips for our listeners? What are your top three tips regarding grant writing, submission, and beyond for our listeners? Yeah, I think if there was one good grant writing tip I received right in the beginning, it was to spend the most time on the specific aims page. So a little bit like what you said about, you know, uh, sending the grant to every to all the relevant collaborators or those who are involved a month ahead of time. How I found it to work best is to spend to spend a lot of time just honing in on the specific aims and the abstract, because that's often where a grant will win or lose and where one needs the most input and refinement. So I would probably spend the time in the beginning on that and send that to the collaborators first. And when the specific aims page is in good shape, the grant sort of writes itself. It's very rare that a lot of the edits or corrections come in the more technical parts of the grant. So that's probably the most important lesson that I learned that I think would be helpful. I think as well, when sending it out for comments, I would probably send it to one or two people at a time. I found that if one sends it to five or six people and then receives a big avalanche of comments and sometimes even contradictory comments, it can be very confusing as to know what to do next. Whereas getting sort of drip fed feedback can be most helpful. And then I think last you know, last and probably most important feedback is don't be despondent. I probably wrote eight or nine grants before I got my first one. And I was told I was quite good at writing. <laughs> I think that's just the world in which we live. That is the climate of grant funding. And I think the more I do, the more I realize that, you know, the defining feature of a successful researcher is not ability, it's persistence. And to just not be you know, to, to see each of these as a learning experience as best you can, you know, take a day to recover and to, you know, go through your process, whatever that process might be, but get back up the next day and go for the next grant and don't let it get you down. And that's a perfect comment for our next question. So Grace, 
Rejection, like Jerushka mentioned, is common. A statistic suggests that one out of eight grants that you submit will get funded. Sometimes when I get these rejections on the email, I feel like my heart just drops because you put months of work. So Grace, what are your recommendations to deal with the rejection that comes with grant funding? First of all, that is amazing, <laughs> you know, Jerushka, that seemed to align with that stat. Aside from saying that, how do we deal with rejection? I think, first of all, not to take any of this personally, you know, it's not personal attack. Uh, although I would say sometimes some of the reviewers' comments may seem like personal attacks. For example, you know, I've had, you know, a comment saying, oh, it's unlikely that she'll be independent, you know, it's like, okay. So, so don't take those personally, you know, people don't know you. The Any uh, suggestions from the reviewer can only help you to improve your concept for the next application. And in fact, being aware that, you know, rejection is probably more the norm should steal you to the fact that, you know, don't get discouraged. And as Jerushka mentioned, you know, it is continuing to persist. It's a fine line though, you know, if an idea is not getting anywhere, you better take a step back and look, make sure you have honest feedback from, you know, the group of team members that you've collated. And perhaps it's maybe a shift in how you approach, you know, the tackling of your research concept, or perhaps a complete abandonment. And abandonment doesn't mean you failed. We always say quitters never win, but um, in fact, you know, the there, there's also a quip about, you know, insanity is defined by doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So, so my top tip is just don't feel discouraged, you know, continue to work at it. View the rejection, especially the comments as a learning and helpful tips to make your next application potentially stronger. Now, Jesse, if I can make a comment here. Please uh, do. It's uh, relevant. I totally agree with uh, it was what has been said by Grace and Yaruska. Yaniska, apologize. But, you know, Churchill, Yaruska, you are from Ireland. You probably know Churchill's history better than me and others. But Churchill had a good saying, the way to succeed is going through failure after failure without losing enthusiasm. And I actually use this to my mentees from time to time. They, you know, they get sad when they get grant rejected. But as has been said, use it to something positive. Learn from it. Don't lose enthusiasm. Remember the Churchill words. And I think that is a good lesson for all of us and particularly, of course, related to grant writing and uh, the grant environment these days is tough. And it is so common to get rejected one time, two times, but don't lose enthusiasm and it will be successful at the end of the day. Learn, learn from the so-called failures. Thank you for sharing that. It is good to hear it you know, for all of you that you have been successful, but you also have faced rejection because sometimes it feels like a dark tunnel in which you are by yourself. We are almost coming to the end of the podcast, but I would like to ask Fred, 
as he has been involved with the ISLC Foundation. Our listeners may be interested in learning how to help fund the future research and lung cancer. Fred, how can our listeners help fund individual and institutions when it comes to lung cancer research? So one thing I have been thinking of lately, but I try to implement it also when I was in ISLC, I think there is a lot of appetite around for supporting lung cancer research. I think we have an, a tendency, are you talking on behalf of ISLC, how to to get more money? Is that the question? I'm, I'm talking about individuals that may be listening that may want to donate to the foundation to support future grants. Yeah, individuals can uh, certainly go to institutions. They can go to investigators directly if it is particularly a relationship between, between an investigator and individuals. But I think in a broader sense, the organizations, and particularly here we are talking about ISLC, I think we need to work more with individuals who have the right network for giving donations. We have been very much focused on academic people, and I think there is an obligation for academic people if they are able to donate. And I have been blessed, and I have made my donation to ISLC Foundation, and some others have done it. But I think what is important is to reach out to the space where you have individuals not directly related physically to academia, but have an appetite for supporting academia. And financial environment, there is a lot of opportunities there. When I was in ISLC as a CEO, I tried to um, include uh, business people in the ISLC foundation with the hope that they could reach out to their network and get donation to lung cancer research. So my advice to ISLC is look into the financial environment and business environment and see if you can connect there and get appetite for donations. Thank you, Fred. We are out of time for this episode. I would like to summarize quickly our discussion. First is plan your grants ahead of time. Try to block time. Send reminders to your mentors. Review the grant as much as you can. Submit, but also don't get let down by rejection. Everyone in this phone call had grants that were rejected and we continue to submit and we continue to work in improving the care of our patients with lung cancer. As a reminder to our listeners, check out the ISLC website to learn more about funding opportunities. Uh, particularly, the ISLC Fellowship has deadlines twice per year. Jerushka, Grace, and Fred, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Narjust, and Thanks, everyone. Narges. Thank you to all. Thank you, Narjust. Thank you, Rarushka. Thank you to all the others uh, around also. Good to see you all. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. I hope you tune in regularly to provide your feedback 
and you are able to join us hopefully in person soon. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.